Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And tonight we are picking up with step number four on obedience. And this evening we're on page 73, if we're following along in the text, with paragraph, paragraph 20. If you remember, we had spoken about obedience following along exile. That uh, And in, in particular, with the break from the world, the first three steps of the ladder, so detachment, renunciation, exile, so freeing oneself from attachment to the things of this world, and then finally, obedience, which is detaching oneself from one's own will. And, uh, and what we find so far within the writings of John is that even one is, though one is submitting to the will of another, one superior in these communities, that what is what the fruit of this is, is free freedom and a kind of joy and also uh, transformation in the sense of their capacity to live with each other in love. And uh, we were given this example, and he's going to give us many here in the coming pages of a community that had so interiorized what the superior had been teaching them throughout the course of the years that they were very attentive to one another's consciences, not wounding one another's consciences, being attentive to helping each other live the life fully, uh, building a foundation uh, for reconciliation wherever there might be conflict between uh, a number of them, or uh, encouraging each other, even when the superior is away, that they would encourage each other to remain faithful to the rule. So there, this spirit of obedience uh, was so interiorized for them that they began to live it with great freedom, and that great that freedom brought with it many different fruits. And those, are, and we're going to be looking at some of those here this evening. So again, we're on paragraph twenty on page 23. And it is not in vain that this laudable rigor is brought to perfection among them, for it bears and shows abundant fruit. And among these holy fathers, many become proficient both in active life and clairvoyance, both in discernment and humility. And so what they begin to develop is this capacity to see through things, to see through, uh, clarity, uh, with clarity about certain realities and circumstances in their day-to-day -day life. Clairvoyance is probably an unfortunate word, I think, in our own day, just because of all the connotations. But I think more, more often than not, it does mean this capacity for discernment, to see the truth in terms of what's going on in one's own heart, but also as well in the lives of others. Uh, but also along with that, then the active life. So the cultivation of the other virtues as well. So to be obedient to one's superior, to follow his guide, uh, his will, then is to be able to cultivate uh, the virtues in line with, with his wisdom that he has gained over the course of years. And so we see them adding virtue to virtue. And one of the fundamental ones he points out here is humility, that none of them would see themselves as better than the other. And uh, I think when the sort of self-esteem and willfulness is pulled out of the picture, then there is a kind of freedom where we engage each other, when we're not vying for position, uh, either within the community or uh, even on an emotional level. And I think we often see that in relationships, that there can be conflicts that arise out of a kind of opinionated nature, you know, holding to one's own judgment, and then at times, maybe not even in a conscious way, where individuals will vie for um, emotional uh, 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 control of a relationship too. And so all of these things begin to diminish, I think, in this spirit uh, of obedience, that they're all seeking to be faithful to the role, but also faithful to their elders, in particular to the superior. And there was to be seen among them an awful and angelic sight, venerable, sacred, and white-haired men running about in obedience like children and glorying in their humiliation. There I've seen men 
who had spent some 50 years in obedience. And when I asked them to tell me what consolation they had gained from so great a labor, some of them replied that they had attained humility's abyss by which they had permanently repelled every assault. Others said that they had obtained complete insensibility and freedom from pain in calumnies and assaults. So, you know, it's interesting how he describes it as almost a terrible sight at first to see that here you have men who've been in the community for over 50 years, white haired and uh, were anywhere else they would be treated with great respect and dignity, but seeing them act as if children in a, in a childlike fashion, not clinging uh, to their own will, but clinging to uh, their father's will, and uh, that is the superior of the community. And again, part of the reason for this is the, the great freedom that it, uh, that it brought them, being able to permanently repel every assault, uh, either from the evil one, where he would seek to draw us back into conflict perhaps with each other or make us willful, but also a kind of insensibility to the pain that comes from insult or calumny or detraction, where others are saying things about us that aren't true. And I think almost in a defensive posture, we will shrink back when someone does that to us and immediately uh, want to defend ourselves or correct the other and or correct the opinions of others. And uh, so, you know, one of the gains that they found here is that those things were no matter, no longer a matter of concern for them, that their one desire was to remain faithful to the role, to their life, but also to uh, their, their, uh, their superior. Uh, paragraph 21, I've seen others of those ever memorable fathers with their angelic white hair, attain of their own volition to the deepest innocence and to wise and divinely achieve simplicity. Just as an evil man is somewhat double, one thing outwardly and, an in, in, and inwardly, so a simple person is not something double, but something of, of a unity. And so there was no duplicity uh, within them that they were, uh, you know, what they, their yes meant yes and their no meant no. And, uh, and so they had achieved this divine kind of simplicity. And again, we can imagine what fruit that would bear for the common life. Not an easy thing certainly to, to achieve, but I think once one has reached that level, then the likelihood of conflict would begin to, to diminish when we lose that kind of defensiveness. Among them, there are none who are fatuous and foolish, like old men in the world who are commonly said to be in their dotage. On the contrary, outwardly, they are utterly gentle and kindly and radiant and sincere, and they have nothing hypocritical, affected or false about them, either in speech or character, a thing not found in many. And inwardly, in their soul, like innocent babes, they make God himself and their superior their very breath. And the eye of their mind keeps a vigorous and strict watch for demons and passions. So a lot there, you know, not fatuous or foolish. So they're, they're not silly and foolish in their behavior. And this doesn't mean they're not joyful. I mean, I think perhaps the opposite, that they were likely very joyful. And I've talked a number of times about some of the contemplative communities I've come into contact with, that they often have this quality of this kind of participation in the joy of the kingdom. And so there often is a, a great deal of laughter amongst them uh, and good humor. But what uh, John is saying here is that they aren't silly or they, they don't fall into a kind of buffoonery. Uh, where they don't take anything serious. And I think sometimes that can happen, you know, that we can move from a kind of joyfulness of spirit or good humored nature into, you know, into those kind of behaviors that uh, really don't take anything uh, serious at all. And so what we see in them is this capacity to be joyful among one another, kindly, 
uh, gentle, not hypocritical or affected. So they didn't become eccentric or put on, you know, they didn't uh, put on these kind of odd behaviors that can often develop within within religion or or religious communities. You know, where uh, one becomes uh, overly affected in the expression of, of one's faith or one's virtue. And sometimes this is a danger uh, within liturgy too. There's to be a dignity about it and piety, but at times it can become affected, you know, and or even just in the bearing of religious people at times that uh, if you're putting on a per certain persona, then it can seem as though it lacks genuineness and that it's there's not something uh, down to earth or rooted in it, that you're putting on a performance for others. And so John is telling us that there was nothing of this among them. And again, you know, seeing this though is the fruit of that obedience, they being able to be attentive to the guidance of their superior and having such confidence in him that uh, that they would not you know, take those paths naturally. And if they did, they were likely corrected for it, which we'll hear uh, in the near future in some of the next paragraphs. Okay, any comments so far? All right, paragraph 22. The whole of my life, dear and reverend father and God-loving community, would be insufficient to describe the heavenly life and virtue of those blessed monks. And yet it is better to adorn our treatise and rouse you to zeal in the love of God by their most laborious struggles than by my own paltry counsels. For without any contradiction, the less is adorned by the better. Only this I ask, that you should not imagine that we are inventing what we write. For such a suspicion would detract from its value. But let us continue again what we were saying before. So he wants us to understand that he's not writing in this kind of pietistic fashion, you know, presenting us with these uh, stories uh, in order to kind of try to arouse a virtue within us. He wants us to understand that these actions were real, what he's going to describe. Uh, about the characters is something that's genuine and true, and he's not exaggerating in describing them for us. Okay. Anything at all, though, about this last little section before we go into some of the stories? <clears throat> all right. Abba Isidore. A certain man called Isidore of magisterial rank from the city of Alexandria had recently renounced the world in the above mentioned monastery, and I found him still there. The most holy shepherd, after accepting him, found that he was full of mischief, very cruel, sly, fierce, and arrogant. But with human ingenuity, that most wise man contrived to outwit the cunning of the devils and said to Isidore, if you have decided to take upon yourself the yoke of Christ, then I want you first of all to learn obedience. Isidore replied, as iron is to the smith, so I surrender myself in submission to you, Holy Father. The Great Father, making use of this comparison, at once gave exercise to the iron Isidore and said, I truly want you, brother, to stand at the gate of the monastery and to take and to make a prostration to everyone coming in or going out and to say, pray for me, Father, I'm an epileptic. And he obeyed as an angel obeys the Lord. When he had spent seven years there, he attained to deep humility and compunction. So it's interesting, you know, Isidore is pretty well known in the monastic literature, but to hear him described upon entering the community as being cruel, sly, fierce, and arrogant uh, is interesting because it shows us, you know, upon entering you know, uh, the monastery, he wasn't automatically holy. And in fact, had to be pounded like uh, iron on the anvil uh, in order to, to drive these things out of him through holy obedience. And uh, so he's given this uh, task and, and we'll hear many like this coming, going forward that are often humiliating on, on 
the surface. And, uh, you know, I think we're wary of that, certainly. And it would only be, some, such things would only be put forward by somebody who's incredibly holy and wise, like the superior of this community, because humiliation uh, can simply be something that crushes an individual or pushes them into despair. But this humiliation of this exercise of obedience uh, draws out the things in Isidore that were most problematic for living the common life. And this, in fact, is what community life does, that it rubs off the rough edges, knocks off the rough edges, and not simply by what the superior does, but I think by living with others and dealing sometimes with their weaknesses, but our own, that those weaknesses are gradually overcome. And so for seven years, he follows exactly what the superior says and with a kind of sorrow of soul, compunction. Then the glorious father, after the lawful seven years and the man's incomparable patience, judged him fully worthy to be numbered among the brethren and wanted to have him ordained. But Isidore, through others and through my feeble intervention, implored the shepherd many times to let him finish his course as he was living before, vaguely hinting that his end and call were drawing near. And that was exactly the case, actually the case. For when his, I'm sorry, when his director had allowed him to remain as he was, 10 days later in this state, he passed gloriously to the Lord. And on the seventh day after his falling asleep, the porter of the monastery was also taken. For the blessed man had said to him, if I have found favor in the sight of the Lord, in a short time you also will be inseparably joined to me there. And that is what happened in witness of his unashamed obedience and divine humility. So the porter would have been the one who would have stay, stayed at the gate of the monastery uh, determining who would enter and who would not. And so he would have been very familiar with Isidore uh, lying at the gate uh, of the, the monastery, begging people to pray for him because he was an epileptic. And uh, so, you know, the idea that for seven years, this obedience would be imposed upon him might seem a little bit frightening to us or severe. Uh, but what we see in these communities, this willingness, and not only willingness to put people to the te test, but this sense of responsibility in doing so, that the superior would have the responsibility for their formation. You know, anyone that is under obedience to him or under his care then becomes his responsibility. And so if he is slack, in trying to form them in virtue or discerning whether or not they should be in the monastery in the first place, then he's failing them. He's failing in charity. And so we don't find in them, you know, this kind of false charity or hesitancy or timidity in, in giving these penances to, to test the soul. And, and he tests him mightily in light of the things that he's struggled with. You know, certainly one who is cruel and fierce and arrogant would have been, would have had a hard time living the common life. And so the superior and his wisdom knew right from the beginning that this is an individual, if he is going to enter the community to receive the habit, and if he's going to be able to endure and others endure him, then all of these qualities would have to be driven out. And so it is in literally humbling himself prostrating himself on the ground, humiliating himself. Remember, humility comes from humus, or like earth, the word earth or, or dirt out of which we are made. So he's reduced to dust, as it were, humbles himself before the door of the monastery, acknowledging his own unworthiness. And it's interesting, even when the superior has it within his mind to give him the habit, and, but also raise him to the priesthood, uh, you know, it becomes clear that the better path for him is the one that he's already on. That to be released now, even though early on this kind of penance would have been difficult, he knew what fruit that it bore within his life. And so ultimately was unwilling uh, to give it up 
easily. And not only that, but he was shortly to die. And so the better path would be to remain to the end, to endure to the end, as the scriptures tell us, uh, this, this penance that was so formative. Any thoughts on Isidore? You hear nothing, I think, at least I haven't heard much, you know, in religious communities. And I remember even reading uh, St. Uh, Pio, Padre Pio talking about the Capuchins, about how different the formation had become even in his own day, that in comparison to what he underwent as a Capuchin novice and what the younger guys were experiencing was much different. And I think when we look to our own day, you know, there's a lot of attention on a certain level of formation uh, that is often on the surface and uh, or psychological testing or things such as that, or, you know, uh, how, how one engages others on the surface level too. In classes, you're evaluated by your, your fellow classmates and professors, but there isn't this often this kind of formation that has to do with the interior life and the formation of the fundamental virtues of obedience and humility that we, we see here. And so how is it that one is to seek to live a Christ-like Christ -like life, to be obedient to the will of the Father as he was obedient and without undergoing the asceticism, the training in the life of, of faith. And the monks were so rooted, as we've often mentioned, that their spiritual reading was the scriptures. And they would often have the entire gospel or the entire New Testament memorized. And so they, they knew that you know, what they were to be conformed to was not something worldly, but what they witnessed in Christ himself, that if their master was humble and obedient, even unto death, so someone like Isidore, would prefer to be humbled and obedient, remain in that position of prostration, even at the gate of the monastery, even not receiving the habit that there was a greater value in remaining humble and obedient because that conformed him to Christ. He becomes a confessor of the faith in the most powerful way in and through this virtue, more so than receiving the habit or receiving uh, ordination. And we just don't think like that anymore. You know, there are, can often be a lot of talk about gifts, talents, abilities, and talk about virtue as well. But I, I don't think on this fundamental of a level, you know, in the sense of realizing how we do cling to just the opposite of what we see in the community that was described in the previous paragraphs. We do cling so fiercely to private judgment, opinion, our own will. And, uh, you know, that brings, you know, not only grief, I think, within religious communities, but it doesn't make one a good shepherd. How do you be a shepherd? How can you be a shepherd of souls unless you have come to be formed at, uh, in the image of the, of the Good Shepherd. Any comments? Maureen wrote, the task was a lie or was, was he an epileptic? It wasn't a lie. I mean, I think what he, again, it was meant to humiliate him, you know, on a, on a spiritual level, I think in reality, Spiritually, he was an epileptic, you know, in the sense of not having control of his own uh, of his own passions, you know, to be cruel, to be arrogant, to be vicious, fierce, you know, that he was more dangerous to himself than and one who's suffered from epilepsy. And so spiritually there, you know, he struggled from this in the same way that people struggle with spiritual blindness. And so he has him enacted out, he, you know, to fall down on the ground, writhe in compunction and beg the prayers of others. 
And it's, again, it's something to free him that, from that which was a far greater affliction. Anthony writes, vocation is seen as a job matching personal characteristics to charisms of a community of the need to have clergy and religious. Yes, often, you know, I think when we hear the word vocation, you know, rather than it being what it is, you know, coming from vocari to call, uh, rather than a call from Christ to follow him or seeing that call as coming from him, that we often will make it into a very personal thing, my discerning whether or not I want to become a priest or a religious or when, whether or not I want to join this particular community, rather than having it arise out of true discernment over the course of years uh, that is rooted more in one's interior life and what one comes to see and what one's spiritual director or elder comes to see over the course of time. And I think this is why we see so many people leave uh, these kinds of vocations, you know, uh, over the course of time because of that lack of formation. And again, you know, how, how does one form others? How do you give what you don't have to others? All right. Paragraph 24. When he was still living, I asked this great Isidore what occupation his mind had found during this time at the gate. And the renowned ascetic, wishing to help me, did not hide this from me. In the beginning, he said, I judged that I had been sold into slavery for my sins. And so it was with bitterness, with a great effort, and as it were with blood, that I made the prostration. But after a year had passed, my heart no longer felt sorrow, and I expected a reward for my patience from God himself. But when another year had gone by, I began to be deeply conscious of my own unworthiness, even to live in the monastery and to see and meet the fathers and to partake of the divine mysteries. And I did not dare look anyone in the face, but bending low with my eyes and still lower with my thought, I sincerely asked for the prayers of those coming in and going out. A wonderful little paragraph you know, of thinking initially, you know, one can hardly imagine doing this for a full year, uh, but thinking that he was sold into slavery, like, what, what have I done? You know, I sold myself into slavery. I promised obedience to the superior, and here I am lying in the dirt for a whole year. And so thinking that, you know, he was being punished for his life. And then when that gives way, it gives way to the thought of reward that God would reward him for his fidelity or for remaining obedient through the difficulty of this trial. But then finally, you know, what, what is formed in him is something far greater, that he begins to see himself as wholly unworthy to live in such a place or to gaze upon the others or to participate in the divine mysteries, that he begins to see the full truth uh, and uh, become, and is really shaped by the virtue of humility completely, that we are given these things, you know, whether it's religious life or particular virtues formed in us, or certainly the, the greatest of all things, our participation in the divine mysteries, the Holy Eucharist, we're given these things not because we have earned them, uh, but because of God's graciousness and his love that these things are given freely to us. And when one begins to see that, one is humbled even more, that it's, it's not because it's warranted uh, and certainly not because it's a reward, that we see the, the truth about ourselves and we see the greater truth of God's mercy and his love and what, what he has done for us. And even the nature of what would be what is un, in, unfathomable to us, which is his own humility, that emptying himself, you know, he takes upon himself the form of a slave, a servant, 
And so how could Isidore see himself as anything else but unworthy of what has been given to him? He sees the preciousness of the virtues and no longer the difficulty of the obedience. Uh, Deborah wrote, would he have been allowed to receive the Eucharist to attend Mass? Yes, you know, I don't think they would have excluded him from uh, the, the receiving the Holy Mysteries from receiving the Holy Eucharist. You know, the, there was a fidelity there. But, you know, I think what we hear uh, from him, uh, that he saw himself as being unworthy of partaking of them, not having earned, earned it. And, you know, I think, again, this is important in our own day because we often will commodify the Holy Eucharist. We approach it in a consumeristic kind of fashion, you know, something that we take uh, and for ourselves by virtue of our Christian identity, but not often uh, recognizing or acknowledging the, the nature of the gift itself. Or as St. Paul says, not discerning the body. And so perhaps eating and drinking to our own condemnation. And so I think Isidore became very aware of his own poverty and his own unworthiness. And in, in this, it doesn't drive him to despair. I think what it allows us to see, again, is how good God is. That despite the fact that, you know, we are perhaps once enemies of God, and then even passing from that so weak and vulnerable in our sin, that God gives himself to us to heal us, that he withholds nothing from us. Bridget McGinley has a couple of comments here. The journey of the spiritual life in such a short paragraph, right? Beautifully spoken and written, we go through the same journey over a lifetime. It is easy to see that God should reward us for the little we do instead of being humble and, and low at the gift. Right. You know, I think we hear in the Gospels, you know, that we should say we are unworthy servants. We've only done what we sh should have done, that you know, what one would expect from those who are the servants of such a master. Uh, when we have one who's given everything to us, has withheld nothing from us, our only response to that can be gratitude and the desire to reciprocate to offer ourselves fully to him, to be, have our lives become a sacrifice of praise, that likewise we would hold nothing back from him. So it is a beautiful movement. You know, I think this seeing himself as being punished, you know, for his sins, and then, you know, moving away from that, but falling into, you know, another kind of illusion that has to be shed you know, the sense of our worthiness of it, than to seeing, being able to see things as pure, pure grace, pure gift. And you can see, you know, every ounce of arrogance, fierceness was shed by the time that, that he died. Okay. Any other comments about Isidore? Not, we'll move on to Lawrence, number 25. Once we were sitting together in the refectory, this great superior put the, his holy mouth to my ear and said, do you want me to show you divine prudence in extreme old age? And when I begged him to do so, the righteous man called from the second table, one named Lawrence, who had been in the community about 48 years and was second priest in the monastery. He came and made prostration to the abbot and took his blessing. But when he stood up, the abbot said nothing whatever to him, but left him standing by the table without eating. The midday meal had only just begun, and so he was standing for a good hour or even two. I was ashamed to look at this toiler in the face, for his hair was quite white, and he was 80 years old. And when we got up, the saint sent him to the great Isidore, whom we mentioned above, to recite to him the beginning of the 39th Psalm. And that Psalm you see in the footnote at the bottom of the page, with patience, I waited patiently for the Lord, 
and he was attentive unto me and hearkened unto my supplication. So again, beautiful that, you know, this superior is not doing it. There's no malice within him. But even, you know, in this old man, you know, to, to perfect the virtue, but also to show John what this perfection looks like, Perf you know, the perfection and patient obedience. Uh, he has him stand throughout the whole meal and then sends him to Isidore, this one who was so lowly that he was lying at the gate of the monastery and recite to him the psalm about patiently waiting for the Lord. So, you know, the whole movement here of obedience is towards greater humility, and not only in oneself, but in others. That the example of the virtues in each of the monks becomes an instructive toll for the others. And we heard this, I think, I don't know if it was in Evertinos, that a superior had begun to see a community uh, wane in its discipline and fidelity to the rule and seeing the need to, to you know, apply these kinds of obediences in order that they might be shaped and formed again anew. Paragraph 26, and I, like the most worthless person, did not miss the chance of tempting the old man. And when I asked him what he was thinking of when he was standing by the table, he said, I thought of the shepherd as the image of Christ. And I considered that I had not received the command from him at all, but from God. And so I stood praying, Father John, not as before a table of men, but as before the altar of God. And because of my faith and love for the shepherd, no evil thought of him entered my mind, for love thinketh no evil. But know this, Father, that if anyone surrenders himself to simplicity and voluntary, and voluntary innocence, then he no longer gives the devil either time or place to attack him. Again, a beautiful thought that, you know, he is attentive enough to what is going on with the mind, within the mind and the heart, that he's able to acknowledge that his superior is in the place of Christ for him, in the place of the good shepherd. And so he's able to see Christ in him and also in all those that he's standing before and to see himself as their servant, as one standing and waiting. And uh, no evil thought enters his mind for the, uh, he loves the shepherd. And this is another thing that I think is, is important that this relationship between the elder and the, the novice or the, the, the monk in the community, that it is a relationship of love, that the position of superior, again, is not misused in such a way uh, to crush another or to manipulate them or to go on an ego trip. Again, it carries with it an enormous responsibility and the responsibility to love and to help them uh, make their way towards salvation. And this being seen in the shepherd then evokes the same love in the monk. So even though from our perspective, this seems like a fierce kind of test to be made to stand more than an hour, uh, even though he's 80 that he looks upon the shepherd with love, has no doubt in his mind, does not think any evil because he hasn't given the demons uh, the opportunity right from the beginning, he gives them no opportunity to attack him. That the shepherd that is asking me to do this is, is not simply the superior, but Christ himself. Uh, Anthony, you have your hand up. Is this simple character the holy fool, or is that something else? Yeah, I think the holy fool that we would see often within the spiritual tradition, especially in the East and often in Russia, is someone who uh, would allow himself to be seen as a fool, almost as a person who's insane, you know, whether it's in his dress or manner of behavior, in order that he would be mocked or not be seen uh, 
for his holiness. And so would play the fool as it were. And uh, I don't, this isn't an example of that. You know, I think this is within the context of the religious community. And it's one who's been formed by that reality. And what we find in John Climacus is that the synobium, the, the common life is sort of like the grade school for uh, religious life, for the monastic life, where one learns the ABCs of the monastic life and where one is formed in virtue. And so it's precisely through these things that one uh, is able to grow in the virtues, in the virtues to such an extent that uh, a greater freedom and stillness of heart begins to emerge. That for John, no one, and it would be unwise for a person to become an anchorite, to enter into solitude, because there would be no one there to form him or to pick him up whenever he would fall. And so typically, you know, one would only go into silence either after having lived a long time in a larger community like this under an abbot or after having lived in what is called a skeet, which would be a handful of men under the guidance of an elder, like three or four men under the guidance of an elder, but living in obedience to him as well. Okay, Ambrose Little. Can you elaborate on voluntary innocence in this context? Okay, let me read the last sentence again. But know this, Father, that if anyone surrenders himself to simplicity and voluntary innocence, then he no longer gives the devil either time or place to attack him. So, you know, he emphasizes here that this is something that has been voluntarily embraced, that no one compelled him to enter into the monastery that with uh, you know, tr true freedom and with innocence of heart that he places himself under the guidance of the elder, like, like a child, voluntary innocence, it becomes you know, a childlike trust in the shepherd. So obedience is more like the trusting love of a child for a parent, a child for a father, than it is this harsh and demanding uh, ascetical practice that we often make it out to be. Uh, that here it is like he responds to the elder as the most trusted and loved individual and is able to do from our standpoint what seems to be the most difficult of things. But he's able to do this because he's reached that level of simplicity of innocence. And that arises more, I think, out of, out of love, love and trust that he's gained in his father and the same love and trust that Christ had for his heavenly father. You have a follow-up? Yeah, I mean, uh, the innocence part is, is definitely the thing I was latching onto there. I, I'm wondering if it's like, you know, if you weren't innocent, then you might start having thoughts about like, what are the motivations Right. and start questioning and start like assigning bad motivations to the person who is asking you to do right. this difficult thing and as opposed to just like you're saying completely just not even thinking about it in a sense and just trusting that they they are doing what's best or asking what's best a childlike nature that uh as you said isn't jaded at this you know and so doesn't begin to question the motivation it's a hard thing. And again, uh, I think going back to the Evercatinos, we see that why one would not do this easily with anyone, you know, live in this kind of obedience or to share one's conscience or one's thoughts with simply anyone, because we see the, the depth of the responsibility and the level of discernment that is needed. And more than that, a kind of love that this is an individual that one can trust without having to call those motivations into question or even thinking about them. Because ultimately what value would that be to an individual if it's still, you know, if the person who's in the position of being a superior and, and is acting in this harsh way and there doesn't seem to be any discernment. And so a person begins to wonder about those motivations, then they are open to the demonic attack. 
And so what value is there for a superior to be harsh? Uh, it's, he's not going to be serving those in his care. And what value is there in placing oneself under obedience to one who has no discernment? Because in, in the end, we are, are going to be tripped up by our own thoughts and we'll never reach that level of holy innocence. So it's amazing, I think, when, when you begin to read the fathers more closely, and I've mentioned this before, the, the language of desire, of love, of holy innocence, of freedom, of joy in the virtues, you know, the joy of obedience or the joy of humility, uh, or even in terms of certain ascetical practices, the joy of fasting. You know, it's that these were things that were all voluntarily embraced and that they began to see that they led them to a greater freedom that they could even, than they could even imagine. And I think we often have a hard time getting to that point in the sense of engaging in asceticism, that is the practice of the faith and all that goes along with deepening our faith. We often have a hard time staying with it long enough that we begin to taste the fruits that are described here for us. I've often mentioned that book, To Love Fasting, and I knew I had to pick it up when I first saw the title because it's like every time you try to fast, you get, I get cranky or just, you know, your stomach's growling and maintaining it for more than a short period of time was difficult. So what would lead a monk to write a book to love fasting? What was it about his experience in terms of his relationship with God, his experience of the joy of the kingdom? You know, what was the, the substance of that joy? you know, in restraining a fundamental appetite. Liz. In some communities, Liz writes, where, where the superior or other brothers, where the superior or other brothers does similar or more humiliating actions out of true malice, can it also be taken as an instructive tool by one who's suffering it unjustly, just out of the evil will of another one? Maybe this is also related with the voluntary innocence without second guessings. Can this be applied in secular life? To which extent can we distinguish it from the line of human dignity? So yeah, yeah that's a challenging question uh, because you know, again here we see someone who is discerning and a superior who is discerning and so, it, it allows it to bear fruit. And one can imagine where one has this kind of innocence that they can look upon the other still with the eyes of love, despite the malice. And yet the, that kind of virtue would need, would need to be there. I think the danger, if, if the malice is sort of a constant reality, say within a religious community, and where a community is sort of overtaken by, you know, this second, second guessing of each other or judgment of each other, or this kind of harshness uh, with, with each other or, or lack of generosity of spirit, you know, eventually I think the whole thing will implode and will not be able to hold itself together. And so we see the value and the importance of the superior here in, in fostering and cultivating a certain kind of obedience. Uh, because you know, again and again, we, we see them warn of the danger of leading people into despair or a doubt or a loss of faith. You know, if you had a steady diet of malice, you know, from others in the community and the superior was inactive and doing nothing and allowing people to be mistreated, then people are not going to stay and you're not going, they're not likely going to be formed very well. Because we have this tendency, I think, then to project that anger and frustration that we carry within ourselves outward onto others. And so it's this kind of vicious circle that can begin to develop though. And we see this too in family histories, you know, those who've been mistreated in one level or another sometimes will project what they've experienced on onto others. 
more out of their woundedness even than out, out, than out, of, out of malice. And that same kind of thing can exist within communities. And that's why you would want to have a superior himself who's lived for many years in that obedience and has lived it well and has been formed in it. And so when put in that position of engaging others, he's going to not be malicious himself, but also have an eye towards what's going on to the, in, in the community in order to be able to correct it in order that he might lay the foundation, as we saw in the witness of that previous community, that all of them working to lay this foundation for reconciliation whenever there's some, is something that becomes dis disruptive in the community life. And so, you know, if a community lacks a kind of emotional and spiritual maturity, how does that, that take place? So we live in a time, and I remember, I think it was John Paul who said this about those being received in the seminary. He said, this is not the time to be lowering the standards or, or, or uh, making the formative process uh, you know, more easy or expecting less. That this is, you know, we're moving into a period of time of history where we need people who are deeply rooted in the gospel and are formed with these virtues in order to be able to witness to them in a world that often is, has a kind of malice towards religion and religious people. And I would say the same would be true for religious communities, that emphasis should be placed in those early years. Like think of Isidore, if we go back to his story, for seven years, he's formed in this virtue and, you know, if, if, if vocation is treated as a job rather than a, a path to sanctity and salvation, if it becomes a mere job and if priesthood becomes functional, then it's not going to bear any fruit. In fact, it might, you know, cause greater harm to the church in the long run, which has happened. We've lived, you know, over the last 20 years, more than 20 years of seeing, you know, what, what that lack can bring to the church and how ugly it can be. Anthony. The monastic literature refers to beginning in community life before solitary life as the best way to live, right? Natural law leads to the valuable community of family life, right? In our day, there are so many single people by choice or by circumstance from age 18 or sadly even earlier, our age appears to be an aberration. Do you have any spiritual advice for many, so many solitaries thrust into solitary life, a period of being neither monastic or, nor familial? Right, I think there is um, across the board in terms of a, a culture, whether it's in a family or otherwise, that is formative. Uh, and so when it's lacking in one's family, or when one is out on their own at a very early time and living, you know, a, a solitary life or, you know, not bound in marriage or to a community, that they need then to form those relationships with the saints they need to, to read the fathers to, you know, it's amazing. And although we should understand this, that, you know, our relationship with the saints can, can be and, off, and should be as real as those that we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis and can be even more powerful for us. Uh, today I was reading uh, uh, from the spiritual diary of Sergius uh, Bolgnikov, I think is his name, and he wrote this, uh, he's a Russian, but wrote this letter that, uh, wrote this diary that I thought was extraordinarily beautiful. But he talks about this in particular in regards to iconography, which if you remember in the East, you know, that they aren't mere paintings, that these are windows, doors, uh, to the Holy of Holies, if you will, to the, the divine life. And so there's an encounter there that takes place that is real 
and tangible and extremely powerful. And I just want you, I, I, I don't like to do this to bring in another text, but I, I just want, since it came up in this question I want about individuals living in the world, we should never see ourselves as living in isolation as Christians. And even if we are in isolation in the concrete realities and circumstances of our day-to-day -day life, the, that we should be in and through our faith aware of the presence of the angels and the saints. And so Sergius Bolkakoff writes this, he says, oh Lord, what a miracle your icons and those your saints are. How miraculous is your presence in others. How miraculous is your nearness and theirs to our sinful world. Beholding an icon of your forerunner, traced by a hand wise in God, I, in trembling and with my soul abashed, felt that he himself had touched my soul, that he left his heaven, heavenly abode in order to illumine the darkness of this world, in order to once again call us to repentance, in order to announce to us the coming of the Lord. One senses that this marvelous icon does not simply trace, but also marks in reality the nearness of the times and seasons, marks the nearness of your witnesses and luminaries who make ready the way of the Lord. It was not this timid and delicate hand that traced this icon, but rather the very hand of the forerunner himself, having touched heaven and earth when he poured water over the bowed head of Christ. One can drink up fountains of consolation, tears, joys, and of the grace before the icon. One can pray before it. One can rise up to the world above. It was one of the most beautiful descriptions that I've come across in terms of this experience of the presence of the saints uh, in and through them, and not just in the mind, not just notionally, but in this concrete way that allows us to experience in the fullest measure, for example, the forerunner, John the Baptist's call to repentance, but also to experience the particular spiritual gifts that he mentions, tears, compunction, joy, you know, all the things that often arise too out of the, the writings of these saints who become these living icons, if you will, for us. Uh, and draw us closer to Christ. And so my greatest counsel, you know, to those who've had this experience or lacking experience in the family or in their day-to-day -day life is to be immersed in the, the divine liturgy, to be immersed in the writings of the, of the saints and immersed in constant prayer in order that they might be in this constant communion, the communion of saints. This is one of the beautiful things that we believe as Catholics. You know, that we're in this radical union and communion with all those who've gone before us. Okay. So Anthony, was that? Okay, good, all right. So that, that brings us to 8.30, and uh, I think that's actually a good place to, to, to stop. But, you know, John is going to give us these stories that reveal to us over and over again the nature of obedience, all of its facets, and the depth of it, what it really offers to us. And so it, we have many beautiful weeks ahead of us. This is, again, one of the longest of the steps in the ladder. Uh, but well, well worth the time. And if you have the opportunity to get that little book, that spiritual diary, uh, I'd highly, highly recommend it. And also another little book that I came across this week, or last couple of weeks, called The Song of Tears. And it's a commentary on the, the canon of St. Andrew of Crete that is read during Lent in the East. And it's exquisite and beautiful. And so if, if you have the opportunity to get one of those, it would be a great addition to your spiritual reading. Okay. So won't we close there? And uh, uh, just uh, one announcement. Uh, Ren and I 
are working on, you know, getting, pulling things together in terms of the website, uh, but also the support of Philokalia Ministries. I know it's been a long time and coming, you know, I've mentioned that I'm working with a lawyer in terms of nonprofit. We're not actually sure that we even need to go in that direction, uh, but uh, we'll have things up and going uh, within the coming week uh, in that regard. Okay. So as always, won't we close with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. God. Thank you all. <laughs>